Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 16th, 2022. Uh, one of my favorite shows last year was with Jeanette Winterton, the English writer, novelist who has a new book out on artificial intelligence. It's called 12 Bytes, How We Got Here, Where We Might Go Next. It's a really interesting book, and I, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, in the book, uh, Jeanette uh, writes a kind of, I guess, love letter to Ada Lovelace, the 19th century inventor of artificial intelligence, the first person to come up with the very idea of software. Uh, today, we're going the other way, so to speak. Rather than talking to a novelist who has written a book about AI, we're talking to an AI expert who's written a novel about the world. Um, Philip uh, Dusek is a Czech-based writer. He's talking to me from Prague. Uh, he has a novel called Flock Without Birds. It's supposed to be a novel about the illusion that created our world. Um, the book was self-published in the Czech Republic, but sold 10,000 copies, which makes it a bestseller here. And now he's in the business um, of self-publishing it in the US under the title Flock Without Birds. Um, Philip is joining us from Prague in the Czech Republic today. Philip, uh, why write a novel? You're an AI businessman, technologist. Um, the book took you many years to write. What's the goal? What's the purpose of Flock Without Birds? Hello, Andrew. Um, and thank you very much for inviting me to the show. Um, well, I'll answer um, maybe a little bit surprisingly. I, I first wrote the novel and then... Uh, in a way, I uh, took the central idea um, that I first wrote about and uh, uh, created a startup around that. So, uh, in a way, the novel was uh, first. Um, the, the idea that it describes was was first, and then um, because I was already in the technology business before that, um, a couple of years later, it, it somehow became. Um, an actual piece of software too. So you're saying that this novel, um, Flock Without Birds, uh, uh, the subtitle, a novel about Western civilization and its blind spot, came out, um, inspired your startup. So you wrote the book first. Um, let's turn it on its head. What was your startup? And, and how was it inspired by the book? So I, um, the key idea of, of um, a startup, which was called stories.bi, was um, that companies today, large, large companies, sit on vast amounts of data. And I've been in analytics for um, a number of years. And uh, it's been pretty clear to me for a while that um, people are not really... Um, uh, the, the best at analyzing vast amounts of data. And that since technology has produced the data that we're sitting on, uh, technology might also be best suited to, to actually analyze it. 
and to tell people just the key points, summaries of those large data sets. And that's uh, what we've built. And it became a highly successful product. Uh, the company. But that doesn't was... sound very original. I mean, everybody knows that. That's what AI is, isn't it? Um, to, to an extent. Um, so so you, you created a, a machine for organizing data. For, uh, you could say, for reducing um, the, the large data sets into just key insights. So it turned it into just a couple of stories, right? Human readable stories. Oh, I see. So you're turning, I wouldn't say data into literature, but you're making data comprehensible. Uh, that's right. And also the, the summarization element was key there. So you, uh, on the input, um, uh, the engine, the AI engine would receive some millions of data points. And the output would be perhaps just 10 short headlines, short stories that say, oh, these are the most important things that are happening here in this vast complex space. So an example of that, of these short summaries might be truth is a fallacy or fear is a compass. Um, so it, those is that be... essentially what you're trying to do with a novel is crunch up all, all the data in the world and make it coherent and comprehensible in flock without birds? Uh, on, on some level, perhaps, yes. So, so those, are, those are some of the key highlights uh, from the book, yes. Uh, it, the main protagonist of the book uh, basically says, look, um, before we even start living, we need to answer some key questions. And he comes from a Christian background. Um, so he says, before I can really start thinking about who to marry, uh, which job uh, to have, uh, where to live, and so on, I need to know whether God exists. Like, because all of those other answers, all of those other questions, are really contingent on this, on this one. Um, if he exists, it will change my options and my decisions on all of these topics. Um, likewise, if he doesn't. So basically what he, and at the same time, he says, uh, but the approach that most people take uh, to this question, I really don't like that. Like, we shouldn't be just saying, oh, I believe in this or I don't. This is the 21st century. We have data. We have AI. So let's just crunch through the numbers. And he takes vast amounts of data from all around the world, uh, representing basically all of those random life events that are happening um, to all of us. And he's looking, he writes software basically that looks for some kind of Uber pattern, right? Some, something that rhymes within those data sets that would point to a signal. Right, to essentially so is this what you mean by uh, a flock without birds? This is the message without all the data, essentially. You could say that on on one level, on one level, yes, it's he is basically writing code that says, "Is there anything between between the lines?" Mm -hmm. So, and you, 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 you have this quote: "Folk wisdom says the whole is greater than the sum of the parts." Um, so what you're trying to do is extract wisdom from the data. So what kind of wisdom does your fictional character extract? What does he learn? So he, um, first of all, first of all, uh, 
he describes what's really driving him. Uh, uh, before I actually, uh, um, Philip, before addressing that, wh why is this a novel? Why not just write a piece of philosophy? Uh, good what's, question. What, what, is novel, what is fictional about it? Right, right. I, uh, I had a couple of points um, in time within those 12 years that I was writing this book when I was asking this time and time again. And I was thinking, why am I writing a novel? Um, why don't I just write a research paper or a nonfiction book that describes a certain philosophy? And those are all valid incarnations of an idea, just like the startup that I have built afterwards was an incarnation of the same core idea. And I, to some extent, um, it does come to my personal come down to my personality. I'm not only a startup founder and a, a technologist. Uh, there's also a, a literary and artistic side to me. And a novel, a, a story, uh, has always had a, a almost like magical impetus to me. At the same time, I am fairly convinced that um, taking an idea. Um, and and narrating it in the form of a story actually has a stronger impact on the world than writing a research paper about the same idea. So back to the my original question: mm -hmm. What wisdom does the the main the, the central character, the philosopher or the AI expert in in your novel? What wisdom does he extract? Does he discover whether or not God exists? Can AI really teach us that? <laughs> uh, so I, um, he creates the software and he, um, you know, uh, the software is running, right? Uh, while it's running, he, he continues to think about, um, about all of these conundrums. And his starting point is really that our society, our, our Western society uh, is, is filled um, with certain paradoxes. Um, when he looks at the history of art, our current politics, our daily decisions, or um, mathematics, all of these human endeavors appear to have arrived uh, at a certain paradox. And this this paradox actually rhymes across all of these fields. We seem to be running into an analogous paradox um, in all of these areas. And that basically tells him that there must be- What, what, what is this paradox? I, I, I was getting into trouble, uh, Philip, for interrupting, but I can't resist. What is the paradox? So when we look, for example, at um, personal decisions, one of the key ones is, who do we marry? And there seems to be this significant tension in many people's lives between like, finding the one ideal partner and on the other hand, um, having many partners throughout life. And neither of these two options is really easy or, or, or completely satisfying. When we look at art, there is a very similar tension between two 
opposing forces or two opposing options, neither of which are quite satisfying. On, on one hand is this idea of an ideal work of art, the Gesamtkunstwerk. And on the other hand, we have postmodernism, where anything goes, anything can be a piece of art. And again, neither of these two really are a solution that we would culturally as a society would be quite happy with. Um, the same happens in politics. When we look at the history of the 20th century and which we are actually currently quite painfully reliving with the current uh, crisis, um, we seem to be in a tension between um, those points of view and those approaches that favored the whole over the individual. And those are authoritarian, uh, socialist, uh, communist, um, uh, fascist um, conceptions of a society. And on the other hand, uh, this um, libertarian uh, view that the individual uh, is, is the ar ultimate arbiter of, um, of, of a society and uh, it's supreme to anything um, uh, that, that resembles the whole. And again, both of these two extreme approaches <clears throat> simply uh, have their own um, difficult incarnations. And as a society, we seem to be navigating some kind of middle ground, which is defined by the two extremes, but not quite by the middle. Is, and this, um, is this the thinking of, a, you say you, you, you came up with your computer company having written the novel, but is this the thinking of a computer programmer, this, what some people might think of as solutionism, the idea that everything can be fixed, that the world it could be a big algorithm and that we can indeed figure out something that works beyond both or either authoritarianism, the, mm. the, um, the, the, uh, the efficiencies of authoritarianism versus the messiness of democracy or versus having lots of affairs and, or, or, and getting married to a single person. Um, mm. I mean, the world, Philip, is messy. That's the nature of things. There's nothing... Uh, if God exists, he certainly uh, didn't work for Google or Apple. He wasn't a computer scientist. He wasn't an AI person. He or right. she or whatever God is. Right. So what you're describing is exactly one of the symptoms, uh, this, this wish for a definite answer for... Uh, for truth, essentially. Um, <clears throat> is that is, why you say truth is a fallacy? One of your 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 pieces of your your nuggets of wisdom, right? So so uh, that is one of those short sentences that aim at basically the core of our cultural model, right? So what's described in the book is basically that. All of these paradoxes that I have just um, described in these different areas, actually, they seem to, to rhyme, right? They, they seem to have a common core. And what described in, in, in the novel is, is that core. Uh, it basically says, or the protagonist shows how we seem to have a certain uh, conception of the world. And that conception of the world is really creating the society as we know it for the last couple of thousand years. And that has to do with our conception of truth, our conception of uh, time, logic, causation, objects, 
and essentially reality. It's quite an intuitive conception. It's a big book then, Philip. Is it in the tradition of, um, I don't know, it sounds a little Umberto Eco-ish like, which, um, I mean, there's obviously some, some Czech influences as well, although it seems a little less satirical than some of some of the great Czech literature. Was there a particular writer that's, that you were trying to emulate here? Well, so certainly one of my my favorite authors in the Czech tradition is uh, is Milan Kundera. Uh, yeah. I I would definitely mention him because I I think that was a person who has opened opened up uh, for me um, basically the possibility to really write deeply about um, perceptions of the world. Um, and he's been someone who I think has pushed uh, this further than than uh, than, than mo- where most authors go. Um, so I think that that was certainly one one influence. At the same time, mm-hmm. sorry, go on, go on. Um, so, and at the same time, I feel I can show you the book here, right? It it really um, is a book that comes in two volumes. One is black, one is white. Um, uh, it's up to the reader to start reading. Yeah, that's what you say. Um, uh, uh, the novel s- comes in two volumes of which neither is first nor second. That sounds to me a little annoying. I mean, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> right. Well, it's putting the first uh, and key decision up to the reader. Uh, it's, um, it's up to the reader to really choose where they should start and what kind of experience they are going to have. So it's not a traditional narrative in the sense that you can begin either in the middle or at the beginning, or there are two middles or two beginnings or two endings. There are two beginnings, right? So when you look at the book, when you open it up from this side, um, it's uh, one of the book starts. When you open it up from this side, uh, the other one starts. And uh, so similarly to those two volumes here, the book is really created through the tension of fiction and nonfiction and um, story and and our search for truth. So I think that that is where where some of the tension between um, between those elements that you are referring to really comes from. I'm speaking with Philip Dusek, the author of Flock Without Birds, a big hit in the Czech Republic, sold 10,000 copies, which is a big deal in a small market like the Czech Republic. Uh, It's now out in the US. I'm going to take a short break now, Philip, and then I want to talk about tech um, and God. And I also want to talk about uh, how to successfully self-publish a book because some some of our audience members are uh, self-publishers as well. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Philip Dusek, the author of Flock Without Birds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, 
podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Philip Dusek, the author of Flock Without Birds, a philosophical book in the Czech tradition, uh, talking to me from uh, Prague. Uh, Philip, do you think the world itself could be a kind of self-publication by God? Couldn't find a, a publisher for it, so he put it out himself, rather imperfect. I, I like that. It, it would most likely then be an autobiography. Uh, I, I think that might work. Um, not properly edited. If um, if God had found a publisher for the for the world or for the universe, do you think it would be improved? The kinks would have been worked out, would have been mediated, as they say in the tech business. It it would be a little bit more perfect and a bit more stale, right? Uh, that's mm. that's what I would say. What is it, in all seriousness, Philip, about? Um, tech people that make them so spiritually hungry, shall we say. Uh, yesterday, I, I did a show um, about Tony Shea, the founder of um, Zappos, supposedly the happiest man in tech who turned out to be the saddest man, probably committed suicide, drug alcohol addict, and ended up um, with a very miserable kind of life. There seems to be a profound spiritual vacuum at the heart of Shea's life. I also did a show last week with Caroline Chen, a sociologist um, at UC Berkeley, uh, who has a new book out, Work, Pray, Code, that suggests that work itself, and particularly the big tech companies in Silicon Valley, are becoming the new churches of the contemporary age. Why are tech people, and I, I'm not suggesting you are the spokesperson of tech, because you. you're a kind of novelist programmer and you're in Prague, which is a long way from Silicon Valley. I'm much closer than you are. But is this something about tech and tech workers that make them so interested in religion? You're clearly someone who's interested in religion, for better or worse. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak on behalf of the tech community. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, with a huge. You need uh, to put a hat on. All uh, right. Right, exactly. And and those others don't know that I am speaking on their behalf. Well, right? they'll probably sue you or something. But... Yeah, exactly. Those are all the caveats. Uh, but, uh, okay, I'll, I'll take a guess. Um, I would say the tech community is um, really trained to 
not follow beliefs in some way, but to go deeper than that, right? Not, mm. to, follow, not to follow tradition, um, not to follow what some authority told them, but to start from first principles and observe and, and, and go from there and build. And uh, this, th th this kind of uh, attitude, um, which is really quite at the heart of, uh, of, of the tech approach to the world, um, is, is certainly um, corresponds to a distrust in the traditional institutions, traditional religions and, and approaches. And um, at the same time, you, you know, we might be asking, okay, but that might just make everybody atheist, right? Uh, I, I'm speaking from Prague and uh, we, I think we are still <clears throat> the number one country um, in the number of atheists. Uh, we have I think somewhere 70% uh, of, of the Czech population uh, considers themselves atheist. And there are some cultural reasons for that, which I won't go into, but... They don't. You know, so atheists, they don't believe in God. That's right. That's right. Um, very interestingly, that just doesn't seem to be the terminal station for for most people who reject religion. Um, you know, um, there, I would say, um, there are drives within our psyche that still make us ask questions like, okay, but what is this world? How does it how does it work? Where did it come from? And even when we reject those traditional answers as just not, not sufficient, not solid enough, uh, we still keep asking. And um, well, that is... Know, yeah, it's one thing to ask a question. It's another to get an answer. I keep on asking you the same question. I'm not getting the answer. Did your AI machine determine whether or not God existed, Philip? It's still running. The program's still running. That's right. It's still running. What about the idea in all seriousness of conservatives, perhaps somebody like Edmund Burke, that philosophy doesn't answer these big questions. And Burke warned us that if we don't fall back on believing in tradition, which can never be proved, then we essentially destroy ourselves, a la the French Revolution, or for that matter, the Russian Revolution. Uh, your literary hero, Milan Kundera, was very good on this. Don't we have to be irrational sometimes? Don't we have to escape uh, AI, data, certainty? Right. I'll, I'll, I'll answer with a quote from the book. Um, I, um, it, there is a line there which says, truth is but a coping mechanism in the face of the great unknown. And, you know, I would personally add that there are a number of coping mechanisms in the face of the great unknown. Um, it's truth, it's religion, it's uh, drugs, it's uh, numbness. There are many ways that people, that, that people avoid, you, in which people avoid staring into the abyss Right, of, of the so, so there is a sort of a conservative, shall we say, Burkean element to this book that 
that truth can't exist, but we need to try and invent it because otherwise everything will be chaotic and will be miserable. Right. So it does, it does eventually, um, um, while rejecting that traditional conception of rationality and, and that traditional approach to, um, to describing reality, it does also describe some alternatives. So, um, but those alternatives emerge basically from the chaos and, and from basically near madness of the main protagonist. Well, madness is also perhaps a normal condition. I mean, that's some, perhaps subject for another book or conversation. I, I began this conversation, Philip, talking about Jeanette Winterton, um, my conversation with her uh, last year. It was a really good one. And, and what I, one of the things I like about her new book, 12 Bites, how we got here, where we might go next, is that she's cautiously optimistic about uh, AI. The current zeitgeist, as I'm sure you know, particularly in Silicon Valley, is that everything about big tech and everything about the digital revolution is bad, which is, I think, as stupid as suggesting that everything about it is good. Um, but do you worry at all about the consequences of, of, of AI? Um, uh, you know, it's such a, an all-consuming technological change. Every big co tech company now, from Google to Facebook to Amazon, is an AI company. Uh, we had Jacob Ward on the show, a uh, big television a reporter, uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, he has a new book out called The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back, suggesting that AI is automating our brains and doing away with our freedom. Do you worry about that sort of thing? Uh, I absolutely do, Andrew. Um, yes, I absolutely do. Um, we are essentially creating more and more leverage with AI. So the, the point of power um, within our world, within our society, is, is more and more concentrated. And, and there are layers of this, right? It's, it's, it's software as such, it's data, it's analytics, it's AI. Like these further layers uh, just create more and more leverage across the whole society that is extremely concentrated. So we see this with the main platforms that we have, right? Facebook, Twitter, um, and all of these. Like, I, I have a, I, th I think I have a sense of sympathy for where the leaders of these companies are, um, because it's a tremendous responsibility that they are navigating with you know, some might say with uh, not much success, some might say, oh, they are actually doing quite a good job given uh, the, the, the stakes. Um, I'm not one to judge that, but I, I do observe um, that there are people who, through their technology, basically have much more responsibility um, than, than we have ever seen in the past. And it's in some way, um, it, it's very much on par um, with the past authoritarian regimes, right? Like, you know, my country has seen 40 years of communism uh, as, as an example. And uh, there are certainly very different shades and colors of um, 
the influence that uh, you can be creating with uh, real propaganda and uh, versus uh, the influence on society that you're creating with tech tools. And, and, and certainly the tech tools are um, trying to create a much more nuanced and much more fair society, but they are dealing with the same magnitude of power. Uh, Philip, um, some people are fearful, of course, of big tech companies, but there's also a deeper fear of technology, AI, that can think for itself. In that sense, some writers have suggested that AI will be our last invention because in a post-AI world, we'll become the servants, perhaps even the slaves of AI. Uh, Jeanette Winterson's great hero, Ada Lovelace, I think would have disagreed. The woman who invented software suggested that Software can never think for itself. It always needs an originator, i.e. us. Uh, some people disagree. Where do you stand on whether or not software, AI, can have a soul, whether it can originate ideas, when it essentially can replace us and we're irrelevant in, 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 in the algorithm as we move forward? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My personal view is that so this idea that, that AI will truly think for itself as, you know, in, in the full sense uh, in which uh, people think and are aware and, and conscious, uh, it, it's an expression of, of, of this quite uh, technocratic and um, <clears throat> an objectivist view of the world, uh, which essentially leaves no space for mystery and um, it says, well, we're, we're just marching, marching forward in our exploration of the world. And, and one of those end states is exactly what you have described. I believe that this, uh, this march will find its match in the form of consciousness. Um, as, as, we, as we are closing in uh, on the mystery of consciousness, I think eventually we will simply not be able to crack that with a reductionist technological approach, right? So we will certainly make, continue to make technology that, that appears to do many tasks and appears very, very intelligent. But I do not believe that we will make technology conscious and that we will make, therefore, technology think in the way that um, we understand people to, to think. So that's the reassuring humanism from Prague, from Philip Dusek, the author of Flock Without Birds. Uh, really interesting uh, new book. Philip, very briefly, any key takeaways in terms of summaries of how to successfully self-publish? Oh, um, okay, I'll... I'll... I'll come back to those paradoxes that I was talking about <clears throat> when I described um, uh, the book. I think we are currently facing two bad options here. One option is uh, to go through that hierarchical traditional um, route, uh, which basically means if you are an unknown author to spend two, three years hoping that an authority, a gatekeeper um, agent will introduce you to an authority gatekeeping publisher 
who will then take your book to market and possibly not spend a lot of focus and attention on uh, on really promoting the book and so on, right? Uh, in some way, that path um, might not even for people who get published uh, really fulfill their expectations. Um, so that is one option that for an unknown author is not perhaps as appealing. On the other hand, there's the second difficult option, and that is uh, the individualist approach of, well, I'm just going to do this myself. And uh, for me, the solution really is, is again, maybe a, a, little, a little tough one, but it's the one that has worked for my startup, which is to approach the publishing um, um, project as if as if I was running a company, as if I was running a startup. So it's in a way taking the best of both worlds. I, I am my own CEO as an author, uh, and I invest resources. I I put together a team, and I do everything I can uh, to um, bring this book to. I will say not as many readers as as possible, but as um, as many readers who will like this book as possible. So that, that nuance there for me is quite important. The wisdom of a, an entrepreneur, maybe God was also a startup entrepreneur. Who knows? Uh, certainly you might have a better idea of God if you read, or if God even exists, if you read Philip Dusek's new novel, Flock Without Birds. Uh, Philip, in addition to your new book, what else should people be reading these days in mid-March 2022? Hmm. I, so, um, one of the books that I read recently and that really resonated was uh, um, Carlo Rovelli's Helgoland, which is essentially a, a re relationist take on uh, quantum mechanics, uh, mm. which is something that you know resonates quite a bit with uh, with the core ideas uh, in in my book, and um, I really enjoyed that. Um, from quite the opposing angle, the other end of the spectrum, I, I recently reread uh, Alejandro Khodorovsky's Psychomagic. And that is a book uh, where he describes his lifelong quest to um, helping people through psychotherapy that uses theatrical acts uh, with deep symbolism to help them get rid of um, dependencies and, and traumas and uh, and so on. So maybe those two books, uh, one one very much um, very much scientific, one one that goes after the core of our objective knowledge, and the other one that deals with somebody's lifelong experience with our inner worlds. Um, I think that, that, that kind of duality is what I would um, propose. Good. And finally, Philip Dusek, the author of Flock Without Birds. Uh, you're well positioned in Prague, the center of the universe, to determine this one. Uh, Philip, who runs the world? Who's in charge in March 2022? Uh, networks. Um, complex, emergent networks that are that are hard to describe, but are becoming more and more powerful.